the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We all experience challenges in life. For some, it's difficult to express their feelings, and so they master hidden pain with substance abuse, anxiety, depression, isolation, or even violence. Today's guest, Matthew Quick, understands that pain. Matthew experienced a dark night of the soul after using alcohol and drugs to treat his extreme anxiety and depression. He got sober in 2018, only to experience five years of crippling writer's block. Matthew joins us today to talk about how he healed and what he learned. Matthew is a New York Times bestselling author of The Silver Linings Playbook, which was made into an Oscar-winning film. His other books include The Good Luck of Right Now, Love May Fail, and The Reason You're Alive. The Hollywood Reporter has named Matthew one of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. His new book is We Are the Light. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Matthew, I want to start off by talking a little bit about your backstory. What was it that you were experiencing in life that made you want to start self-medicating? Well, um, from an early age, even, I can remember, even in elementary school, I I felt a sense of um, uneasiness in the world um, that I think I wouldn't have called it anxiety at the time, but I think I was having, you know, even anxiety attacks in in elementary school. And as I... um, you know, got older and became a teenager, this this started to become apparent that things were happening to me inside of me that I suspected weren't happening with a lot of my friends. And, you know, in their 80s and 90s, there wasn't a lot of talk about mental health. So I didn't know I had an anxiety disorder. I didn't know, um, you know, I knew that I was sad from time to time, but I, I didn't really think of myself as like a depressed person uh, but when I started to drink in college, um, it helped a lot. And I found that if I was in a social setting and I had a few drinks, I could survive in a way that um, would allow me to stay there. Whereas if I didn't, um, I would probably leave the party. So it became um, apparent to me that there was something going on inside of me that I didn't quite understand. And alcohol was the socially acceptable way to to manage that for many, many years for me. I've spoken with a number of people recently who have gone through recovery, and they all shared a, a similar type of story as to why they began to drink. Some of them had even said that after they had their first drink, they, they felt like, huh, this is what normal people must feel like. Did you have that same experience? Yes. Um, it was more, it was just such a relief, you know, um, alcohol, you know, and I, having a drink at night after a day of anxiety and watching all of the anxiety go away, it was just such a respite. And it just felt like I could breathe. Um, my, my mind would just kind of shut off. I remember reading in the Tennessee Williams play about, you know, the character, I think it was cat on a hot tin roof. He, he talks about drinking until he hears the click in his mind. And I, I remember when I read that line thinking, yes, like that's exactly right. 
um, you would drink until something would turn in your mind and you would be free of all of the pain and the anxiety and, and um, the obsessive thinking. Um, so, you know, when I discovered that in college, it was, it was really um, like opening a door into um, a safe space. Uh, you know, it was like an exit from, from the pain um, and, you know, I, I, again, I, I wasn't conscious. I think I just kind of in, intuitively knew that I, this felt like relief and I didn't question it much because, uh, of course, on a college campus, getting drunk is what you do. Um, mm -hmm. So it was hur hooray for me, you know, like I have this, this relief and also it's what everyone else is doing. So um, there it is. And, you know, I, I became a high school English teacher and, you know, there's a, there's a pretty strong a drinking culture amongst teachers and there is a pretty strong drinking culture amongst writers. So it was not out of the ordinary for me as a teacher, of course, never in school, but afterwards to go to the bar with other teachers and to have drinks. And mm -hmm. of course, in the writing community, it's just, you're expected to drink at all times, you know, right. everything you do in the writing community has, has alcohol involved. So it, it was something that, um, I, I don't think I consciously admitted how much I relied on it. It was something that I needed. You know, when I would walk into a social setting, I needed a drink in my hand immediately. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was, that was something that I didn't come to terms with until my forties, you know, and in my twenties and thirties, I, I just pretended like, well, this is normal. This is everyone has a drink at the party. It's fine. But for me, it was something I needed. It wasn't something that I was enjoying. It wasn't something that um, I particularly even liked. It was it was a requirement, right. uh, and that was that was something that I didn't I didn't really understand that was a problem uh, until my mid forties. Well, and you had such a successful career as well. I mean, look at the work that you were doing while you were drinking. Do you think that that in some way it helped with your creative process? Yes. Um, I, I, I do. And, you know, I, I've recently kind of put together as I've thought about this a lot in the, the I mean, I'm in Jungian analysis and, you know, the analysis I do, I've been thinking about this and trying to go back, but I, I grew up in a very religious household. Um, and when I left that household, I also left the church of my childhood. And that is exactly when I started drinking. And so I, I've thought a lot about how, um, you know, the religion of my childhood, which was um, fundamentalist Christianity, you know, was really, you know, whatever you think about that, it was a place for me to engage with transcendence. It was a place for me to engage with the divine. And alcohol is very, um, you know, aptly named a spirit. You know, and you know, people in AA know, and Young was very involved in creating AA that. In order to beat alcoholism, you have to reach for a higher power. And so I think subconsciously, my drinking attempt was an attempt to replace the, the transcendent experience of my religious experience as a child. And I think in my writing, um, I'm always trying to reach for something more. I'm always trying to reach for ecstasy. I'm always trying to reach for transcendence. I'm always trying to reach for, for these larger things that are bigger than us. And alcohol was a shortcut to get there often. Um, you know, that sense of transcendence, that sense of delivery, that sense of freedom, um, that sense of ecstasy. Uh, I could get that with three or four scotches at night. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it might have been a cheap imitation of that. But, you know, I, I do think that um, particularly even in the religion of my, my childhood, every Sunday we'd have communion and we were supposed to drink the the blood of Christ, which was the wine, you know, we dr were drinking grape juice in a Protestant church, but, you know, just even the fact that that was tied to alcohol, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's something there. And I think in my creative process, um, you know, creatives, particularly novelists, you're trying to do something that is virtually impossible. You know, making a living as a novelist is, is a very, very hard thing to do. The odds are against you at every step. Uh, and, there are a lot of voices in your head and there are a lot of, a lot of demons speaking to you and you know, imposter syndrome and all of that. And alcohol is a very good way to find courage. You know, I'm not saying that it's a good way in terms of people should do it, but you know, it, it does remove doubt. 
And I think at the end of the day, having that escape route into alcohol really was necessary for me because I hadn't done the emotional and inner work that I needed to take care of those inner voices in a different way. Right. So again, it was, it was a functional, you know, it had a purpose and, and for a while it, it allowed me to, to, you know, use my ego to kind of just pull through a lot of stuff and not look at the pain inside of me not look at the hurts inside of me. But at some point, you know, um, if you're lucky enough to have some success as, a, as an artist and you get some of the things that you, you're dreaming from, for, and, you know, this is a story that many people have told, you know, you, you have that day where you're sitting at the Oscars, you know, with your, your book being adapted into a movie and you think, oh, is, is this it? You know, this is what I was, you know, I don't feel better. Like it didn't solve all the pain inside of me. I still have all these broken places. And when you when you have that type of mountaintop experience and you realize this thing that's been driving you is not fixed by the success, it's not fixed with money or, or um, any type of accomplishment, then that, you know, for me, it led to a kind of crisis where I said, oh, you know, like external things are not going to fix the broken things inside of me. I've got to go inside of myself and do this yeah. internal work, which is really humbling um, and terrifying. <laughs> like those this five years of writer's block were, were, were just a terrifying experience of, of, you know, not being able to, you know, blame the external world for things and kind of reclaiming and saying, no, this, this is about things that are going on inside of me and I need to look in the mirror and I need to fix these things. But that's such a great point, Matthew, because if you look at most people today, they're always looking for that external validation or those things outside of themselves, the bigger home, the fancier car, the more powerful job. It's it's all those things that once you attain, like you said, I mean, you had the ultimate experience sitting at the Oscars, but once you achieve it, then you say to yourself, well, I'm still not happy. And you're right. It is painful to go within and have to fix what's broken inside of us. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it was, it was shocking to me at the Oscars, too, to see how many A-list celebrities with the camera on were all smiles and happy and looking glamorous. And with the camera off, their heads were down and they were shaking because it's such an intense experience and they were exhausted. And, um, you know, oftentimes these things that we think that we want, um, you know, I've seen many famous people uh, off camera you know, they're not as happy as they appear on camera. And and some people are, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a sweeping statement, but I think, you know, we live in a culture that glamorizes the external and kind of doesn't really pay as much attention to what's going on inside of individuals. Um, and I, I think that that is definitely linked to this mental health crisis that we're having. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to look good on the internet. It's another thing to, be at peace with who you are inside of yourself. Um, and we, we really reward the first and we, we don't even really pay much attention to the second. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I chased that dragon for a long time. You know, I, I did the social media, you know, I tried to get the likes. I, I tried to figure out like who I was supposed to be um, for, for whatever audience and, you know, I think you get to a point, particularly for me in, in midlife, where you kind of have that moment where you realize that like, this is never going to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. And when I had that moment, it was it was terrifying because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I think those five years were really uh, a wrestling match with my soul of, uh, you know, uh, I had to figure out a way to get humble and ask for help and start finding a way to go inside and fix those broken places. Why do you think you didn't give up when you had that writer's block? Most people would have said, I'm done with writing. I can't do this. What made you keep moving forward? I think, honestly, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I um, You know, I'm, I'm a deeply introverted person. And, um, you know, I, I love writing. I love sitting in a room alone and trying to figure things out. Um, I also think that you know, I had the support of my wife, you know, and she was encouraging me. And, and I felt as though there was something that I needed to say yet. 
and I just didn't know how to say it. And so it was this kind of puzzle that I was trying to figure out that I was obsessed with. But I do think that the writing is, is inherently linked to my mental health. And so I've always taken my mental health problems and tried to drag them into the creative writing wrestling ring and wrestle them down onto the page. And so all of my books are born out of that process. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, I was continuing to fight to manifest the best of me into the world. And there are times when I didn't think I was going to make it through that process. Um, it was a very dark night of the soul, but I just kept trying. I kept putting one psychological foot in front of the other. Um, and, you know, it, it, I don't want to glamorize it or, you know, suggest that it was heroic because many days it was the extreme opposite of that. Um, but there was just something in me that just kept, that didn't want to give up on, on, on me. It was less about trying to put a book in the world and more just about trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life and mm-hmm. who I was supposed to be. So your new book then, We Are the Light, this is really a healing journey for you and it must be very important for you. And what do those words mean to you, We Are the Light? Well, um, I think, you know, they mean a lot of things, but without getting into spoilers in the book, I, I really think the the emphasis is on the word, the word we, you know, I think we're all looking for light when we're in the darkness. And, you know, like I said earlier, um, when I was a young man, I kept thinking the light must be out there. Who has it? You know, um, I need to find that person and earn it. You know, I, I need to go make some type of arrangement with the external world out there and, and get the light that I need. But I think that the journey I've been on, and particularly the Jungian work I've been doing, I'm realizing that, oh, no, no, the light is inside of all of us. You know, it's we have it within us. Like, we are the light. It's not something else that's external out there. It's us. Like, it's it's on us to do this work and to figure this out. And, you know, a part of my healing journey, you know, when I was drinking a lot, um, I would get angry and I would blame my problems on other people. And I would try to paint myself you know, mentally, if not, you know, or privately, if not publicly, as some type of victim. Well, mm-hmm. this must be because this happened in my childhood, or this must be because I'm not the right type of person for the zeitgeist right now, or this must be because these types of people don't like me. But really, um, that was all just nonsense. And uh, really what it came down to is I didn't want to look at um, my shadow elements, the things that were keeping me from making connections in the world. It was It was always me. You know, and that that is both a, a really humbling and awful realization, but it's also an incredibly empowering realization that, you know, well, you, you know, I was also an alcoholic and drinking too much the whole time, too. So maybe that had something to do with, you know, me not obtaining the things or making the connections that I want. Um, and also like having a bitter, resentful attitude, however you, you mask that, that, that creates a certain energy that you project into the world. and. And uh, what I've been learning through the Jungian work I've been doing is that, you know, the, the face you put towards the world is often the face that, that is reflected back to you. And it's simple, you know, even on book tour, I've been, I don't like airports at all. And I've been in a lot of airports the last um, couple of weeks. And I've been really practicing, you know, not going into the airport with the attitude of I hate being here. But going into the airport and saying, you know, everyone's in the same situation. Let me try to have a nice conversation with the people around me. Let me try to smile at people. Let me try to be polite. And I can't tell you how much that has radically transformed my airport experience. All of a sudden, I'm finding people are being nice to me and smiling back at me. And, uh, you know, it's not 100%, but, you know, this experiment that I've been doing really has underscored the fact that, you know, the attitude that I'm bringing to situations is often creating the situation um, or at least coloring the situation. And that was something that I really didn't see, um, you know, when I would go to the airport and immediately go to the bar and drink three scotches before I got on a plane or whatever, you know, um, mm-hmm. this, this is a new thing for me. And it's very empowering. Um, it, it requires being humble. With the way you're feeling now, Matthew, with the work that you've been doing, do you still have the desire to drink? Do you, are there times when you fear you may relapse? You know, it's interesting. I had a dream last night um, where I had a drink, and I felt extremely guilty about it in the dream. And I woke up thinking, why did I have that dream? You know, we do a lot of dream analysis and, and Jungian analysis. I, I don't 
consciously have that, um, you know, um, yearning to drink. Like I can be in a bar or I can be around other people who are drinking, but I often have to have a seltzer in my hand. It's, mm -hmm. it's a weird psychological thing that um, if I'm around people who are drinking, I will consume a massive amount of seltzer, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think there is some part of me that still yearns for that escape into transcendence, that, that quick fix. Um, and so I, I monitor it, you know, and I, I'm aware of it. I don't think it's something that ever goes away. Um, but I, I try to have a healthy relationship with that, that part of me, you know, that shadow side of me and respect it. And what's going on now with your creative process? Do you feel that it's opened up again? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I would use the word open up. I feel like I'm being, I'm being receptive again. Like, um, it's almost like if I'm an antenna, I'm, I'm receiving the frequency again, you mm -hmm. know, I've fixed that antenna um, and so, yeah, I'm working on this screenplay for We Are the Light, and I have another novel I'm working on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really monitor my relationship to those projects and not fall into old old traps, but it, it's going well. And I feel like it's going at, at the pace um, that it should be going. And I'm trying to be grateful for the work that's in front of me and, uh, Again, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, seeing what shows up, what opportunities and being very grateful for them. But I have to say that in my sobriety now, I, I do find that my my relationships, my professional relationships have really um, deepened in a very surprising and beautiful way. And, you know, I, I feel the clear, the more clear I get and the more conscious I am of what I'm putting out into the world, uh, I feel that other people... Um, who, who work with writers such as me are, are, are really kind of, they're, they're, they're seeing that they're getting that frequency and the right people are showing up in really great ways. So it's been, it's been a positive experience that way. And, um, you know, as, as I go, I'm four and a half years sober now, as I keep going down this road, I, I see, um, so much of what I was missing out on earlier or so much where, that I just didn't have, uh, you know, a, a sober appreciation for. So it's been good. And Matthew, what do you hope people take away from We Are the Light? You know, people have been asking me this the first time uh, um, someone asked me this about a month ago. I, I really paused for a second and I thought about this and I, I just kind of spontaneously said, uh, I want readers to, to know that they are worthy of receiving and giving love. And I think the book is about radical love. Um, you know, in, in this time in our country, we're talking a lot about power. And, you know, those conversations are really important, you know, and I think we have to have conversations about power. But I think we also need to have conversations about love without relegating it. You know, I think we have to keep them on an even scale there, you know. And, and I think sometimes as we talk about power, we kind of relegate conversations of love and and so I think that this book is an effort to restore those conversations, to lift them up a little bit, um, because I think we are all worthy of giving and receiving love. And I think that that is, is something that um, needs to be underscored these days. The book is We Are the Light. If you would like to get more information about Matthew and his work, you can visit matthewquickwriter.com. Matthew, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I really appreciate you sharing so much of what you've experienced, and I truly believe it's going to impact so many lives, and I'm honored that you were here to share this with us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful, sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training.
It's time for Cheer Health. Joining us today to talk about how we can use energy medicine to promote physical well-being is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified Reiki master and founder of Crystal Clear Energies. Welcome, Roxanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. Roxanne, so many people today are stressed out and anxious. From your perspective as an energy healer, what happens to us when we live with constant stress? Well, Joan, that's such a great question. When we live with constant stress in our bodies, we are creating a whole storm of energy that's going through our body that's that's not distributing where it needs to properly. And when talking about energy, we our energy flow needs to be consistent throughout our day. The energy gets stuck within our systems, within our chakras. And this is where disease can start to begin happening in our bodies. Okay, so you just mentioned chakras. What is a chakra? Okay, chakras are our energy centers in our bodies. We have seven main ones. And these chakras govern all the different organs in our bodies and body systems as well. So they need to be functioning and working correctly in order to obtain optimal health. For a visual, is it like there's this energy current that keeps circulating through our body? Yes, each chakra is actually spinning and they are connected to each other as well. So this current has to be consistent and flowing within our body and when we become stressed, that energy can get stuck. What are some of the things that you see people experience when they have blocked chakras? Oh, there's so many things that could be happening. The symptoms could be anywhere from having anxiety, depression, um, pain, uh, chronic illnesses, and the list just can go on and on. We don't realize how much our chakras affect our entire body, whether it be our mental body, physical body, our emotional body, and our spiritual body. It affects every aspect of our lives. Once that energy is flows, if you have a chakra that's blocked and, and shut down, some, you're going to be suffering with some type of the illness or dysfunction in, within that particular area of the body. So let's say it's your heart chakra. So obviously the heart chakra, the main function is around your heart, but it also has to do with other areas in your body as well. So a person may be experiencing um, different aspects of their health failing within the heart chakra area as well as even just their emotions and feeling loving themselves or loving others. And you'd be surprised how much the chakras do regulate what's going on within our lives. Once they're balanced, then you can start saying, oh, wow, I can really feel a difference. I understand. I feel like everything is connected, so to speak. So, Roxanne, as an energy practitioner, you work with a, a variety of modalities to help people reduce stress and promote well-being. Can you provide a few strategies that we can do on our own to help induce calm? Oh, sure, Joan. There's plenty that we can do on our own. First of all, most of the, I think, a very important thing is our breath. A lot of times when we are stressed, we do tend to hold our breath. So just being mindful of your breathing alone, um, nice, slow, deep breaths in, and maybe a little longer, deep breath out, and doing that for maybe a period of four to five minutes, just doing that alone can help calm your stress. Meditation is always big on my list because you're connecting very from within and it keeps you in a very quiet, reflective space. Uh, That's a really wonderful, wonderful way for stress reduction. Another great one is sound. Any type of sound, um, listening to nice music, keeping yourself in a nice space. Um, A lot of people love the ocean. They love listening to the sound of the ocean. Um, You know, there's a lot of apps out uh, out there today that you can listen to to help with sound, Uh, whatever in particular. I love the sound of singing bowls. So, you know, playing a singing bowl or listening to something on YouTube. Uh, There's lots of things you can listen to to actually just really connect with the sounds um, so they start to resonate within yourself. Using essential oils is another one. Um, Just the scent of the oils alone will actually keep you calm and reduce your stress level. Um, You can use it even during sleep. You know, running a diffuser is wonderful. Getting back into nature, just taking a a nice walk or going to the mountains and allowing that energy just to to permeate through your body. Of course, exercise is is huge. Um, Just being, you know, getting your body physically moving. So there's a lot of things. And of course, you know, if someone has an extra time, you know, doing something like a Reiki session to help balance those chakras and make that part of their routine so they can start reaping the benefits of having energy work done on their bodies. Roxanne, thank you so much for joining us and providing such wonderful strategies. 
Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joan Herman. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, Tips to Be a Successful Sought-After Radio and Podcast Guest, I provide information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. If you're like me, you find yourself saying yes more than you would like. There's a co-worker selling something, an invitation to a party for someone you hardly know, or a friend who always seems to be in need of a favor. And when you say yes, you often end up frustrated at yourself for not being stronger. Joining us today to offer strategies to help us stop saying yes is Sarah Knight, author of the No F's Given Guides. Her latest book is F No. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sarah, when I constantly say yes, I use the title of your book, which we're saying F No, but it actually is the full word. I use that very often because it's easy to relate to. So I want to start there. How did you come up with the branding for your work? Well, you know, my very first book that I published almost five years ago was actually a parody of Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I'm sure your listeners have heard of that. It was a revolutionary decluttering guide and a big bestseller. And I thought to myself, what if I could write a book about decluttering your mind instead of decluttering your closet or your garage? So I wrote a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving an F, And that was the beginning of what turned out to be a little self-help empire of my own uh, because people really responded to the very liberating common sense uh, tactics and techniques and the attitude and the humor in my first book. And then I was able to write four more, uh, culminating with the one that you were just talking about, F no, how to stop saying yes when you can't, you shouldn't, or you just don't want to. So, Sarah, as I said, I am just as guilty as everyone else of doing this. So why do you think we have so much trouble saying no? I just think that for most of us, you know, whether we're people pleasers or if we identify as overachievers, which is something I've had a problem with my whole life, or even if you're just kind of a pushover, um, it's easier in the moment to say yes. The problem is that it is often harder in the long run when you said that yes. And so what I'm trying to do is get people to visualize the consequences of saying yes and accept the consequences of saying no, because for the most part, the consequences of saying no are you preserving time, energy, and money for yourself to do the things you really want to be doing. And for the most part, people don't really care how you live your life as much as you think they do, and you're not going to get as much pushback and guilt as you think you, know, as you, think you are and as you've actually been putting on yourself. So you've been doing this work for some time now, and to help someone self-analyze, how much time do you think we actually spend doing things we don't want to do? Oh, probably at least half of our lives, or at least mm-hmm. half of your lives. I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> um, you know, if you if you look at it in terms of you know your personal life with your friends and particularly your family, which is often a minefield of obligations, both perceived and actual obligations. Um, that alone, you know, can really be a huge uh, burden on your your core resources, which I talk about in all my books, your time, energy, and money. You know, these are the things that you have to spend on things that you love and on things that you hate. And the more you spend them on things that you hate, things that you don't want to do, the less time you have to spend them on things and people that you love. So, I think in our personal lives, uh, half the time we're doing things we don't really want to be doing just because we're trying to please people. In our professional lives, we're doing things we don't really want to be doing or don't have time to do um, because we are overachievers and don't want to look like failures and don't want, um, you know, consequences leveled at us in a professional way. And really, as it turns out, if you just try it, if you just try saying no in an honest and polite, forthright, timely manner, you're going to get away with it most of the time and the rest of your life is going to be better for it. Okay, so you advise that we try saying no and and you say that there are four different kinds of no's. There's the hard no, the professional no, the no and switch, and the no that leaves the door open. So can we just talk briefly about each of these? And let's start off with the hard no. 
Sure. The hard no is simple and direct. Uh, it's just very clear. No, thank you. No, I can't make it. No, I can't afford that. Or maybe even no, I don't want to. Um, and what it should do is just put an end to the conversation. You don't have to offer more reasons because the more reasons you offer people, the more ammunition they're giving, uh, they're being given to argue with you on. And we don't want that. Okay. So now the professional no. Now the pro no is going to be a little bit more sophisticated. You have to throw in some of those words that bosses and HR representatives and clients like to hear, um, you know, just saying things like, upon consideration, and I'm afraid that's unfeasible. Uh, but mostly what I want people to understand about saying no in a professional context is that it's better to say, I'm sorry, that won't be possible, rather than saying, I can't do that. Because it calls your competency into question when you say, I can't. And you can just be more direct and say, that won't be possible. And that usually puts an end to the conversation. Looking at the no's, I think my favorite is the next one, the no and switch. Can you explain this one to us? The no and switch simply means you say no to whatever has been asked of you or demanded of you, but you offer an alternative that works better for you. So, for example, if you have a friend who invites you to a dinner party and you really don't like the crowds at her party, maybe you just don't like her boyfriend and you don't want to get stuck sitting next to him for three hours, you can say no, but I'd love to see you one-on-one. -on -one. Do you have time for lunch next week? So you're basically saying no to the thing you don't want to do, but you're still attempting to please the person on the other end by offering an alternative that will hopefully work for both parties. The next one is the no that leaves a door open. What does that one look like? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a no for now, and it works really well for people who suffer from FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, you know, if, if there's something that you're being invited on a trip with some friends, but you really can't afford it, or you really don't want to use your vacation days for this particular uh, outing because you need them for something else, but you don't want to not be invited again, and you, and you certainly don't want to wind up outside of your friend group looking in because you said no, you can be really honest about that. You can say, it's a no for now, but I'd love it if you ask me the next time you want to do this. Um, you can explain very clearly that it's not something that's going to work for you right now, but that you would love to have the opportunity in the future. And that works uh, for professional situations as well. You know, if you're worried about saying no to, to a client and having, you know, losing their business in the future, you can say, I have to say no for whatever reason this time, but I really hope I'll be your first call in the future. I love working with you. And Sarah, what do you advise for someone that is just getting used to, to saying no and when he or she does, the person on the other side gets angry? What do you advise that person do to keep that relationship healthy? Well, first of all, I'll say that in my experience, uh, people don't tend to get nearly as angry or offended as you worry that they are going to. If you deliver an honest, polite, timely no, most people will take you at your word, and some of them might be a little disappointed. They might react in a totally natural way saying, oh, are you sure you can't change your mind? Or, oh, no, I wish you could be there, to which you can, you can mirror that and say, yeah, I wish I could too, but it's a no. Um, or, no, I really can't do anything about this but thanks, I'm, I'm glad that you're going to miss me, and just put an end to it. And usually that works. There are going to be cases where people are going to get angry or offended or they're going to try to make you feel very guilty. And what I say to those people is I've given you my answer, and honestly I feel that you not being able to take my no for an answer says more about you than it does about me. Sarah, some of your work has dealt with helping people stay calm during difficult situations. We're having a crisis right now, and what advice do you offer to help someone navigate this uncharted territory? Oh, boy, it is really, really wild out there for so many people. And my previous book was called Calm the F Down, and it was all about anxiety, managing both clinical anxiety and also situational anxiety that people find themselves in, such as right now, and solving problems, and really about focusing on the things that you can control and trying to let go of the things you can't. So the big takeaway uh, <clears throat> from that book is the one question to rule them all, which is, can I control it? And when you break a situation down uh, into things that you can control, such as, I can control not leaving my house. I can control wearing a mask when I go to the grocery store. 
I can control downloading some games off of the internet to amuse my children in quarantine. Um, those are the things that you should be focused on and that you, that, that will bring you that feeling of being back in control over your life in these crazy times. The stuff that you can't control is always other people's behavior, other people's attitude. And it really doesn't do you much good to go down a rabbit hole of despair or anger or resentment over people who aren't doing things the way you think they should be doing them. You know, focus on your own, uh, your own life and your own situation first and really try to let go of the, the noise of everybody else if you can. And Sarah, what would be the takeaway you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, I just think that when we are all allowed back out of our homes and back into our regular daily lives, both personal and professional, we are going to have learned a lot about what's important and what we really care about and what we can't live without. So if you can go forward into your life being confident in saying a clear, uh, meaningful no to the stuff that you don't want to waste another minute of your life on so that you can fully enjoy all of the rest of the things that you're going to get back when we're let out of quarantine, that is something that I think will stand you in very good stead uh, now and for the rest of your life. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. I am Bertha Robinson, business coach with Star One Professional Services. I often get asked the question, what is the difference between a coach and a consultant? Many expect a coach to give advice or to be a mentor and show the way. However, a coach's role is not to advise or lead you. Rather, it is the coach's role to help you discover for yourself where you currently are and where you want to go. Once you identify the path you want to take, your coach travels the journey with you to provide support, guidance, and encouragement. To illustrate, let me ask you, what is the best way to teach a child to ride a bicycle? Should you present a PowerPoint presentation that informs the child about the dynamics of balance and pedaling mechanics, the consultant approach, or should you get on the bike and show the child how it's done, the mentor approach? The time-proven method is to help the child onto the bicycle and provide support as the child learns through trial and error how to ride for themselves. Over time, trying, failing, and trying again, the child eventually learns how to ride the bike independently. The coach's role is to provide support, guidance, and encouragement as you move into uncharted territories of your life and beyond the comfort zone of past experiences. You will gain more courage to strive for new goals, develop new skills, and reach for higher levels of success with your coach running beside you. To learn more, reach out to me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website, staronprofessional.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Eileen Lashinsky, a psychotherapist, empath, intuitive healer, and body image specialist. Eileen works primarily with women to support their emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Joan. Thank you for having me. Eileen, as we've previously discussed, our body gives us messages. Would you just remind our listeners about some of the things that our bodies can tell us? Our bodies tell us the stuff of our everyday lives. Our bodies tell us when we're tired, which should be a signal to go to sleep, when we're hungry, which means we have to eat, that we don't feel well when we eat foods that are not nutritionally based, and we feel good when we do eat according to healthy nutrition, uh, those kinds of things. They tell us when to go to the bathroom, when to, um, I might have said this, go to sleep. The point being that our bodies will give us um, answers or indicate to us uh, what's going on, and we need to learn to listen to our bodies. Our bodies will also tell us, and this is more of an intuitive message, whether we're on the right track. So should I um, accept the proposal from this man 
okay, I tune into my body. And by the way, this was something that actually happened to me many, many decades ago. Should I tune into my body? And if I am tuning in, what's the message I'm getting? Am I getting a yes or am I, a yes is a heart opening, or am I getting a no, which is a constriction in my chest, in my heart, or a muscle tension in my body? And so our bodies can give us intuitive messages about danger, about whether we're making the right choice whether it's about a job, whether it's about a marriage proposal, whether it's even, believe it or not, whether it's about a financial decision. So our bodies hold wisdom that our minds can't because our minds are our egos and they can talk us out of decisions that we know if we really pay attention to our bodies our bodies are saying, this is the way to go. And we need to turn that around, Joan, so that we're listening to our bodies and then saying, okay, mind, do you agree with this? As opposed to, mind, what's the, where should I go? How do I do this? I'm someone who has learned to listen to my body, and I can tell you, that it doesn't just talk to us, it screams at us. So why do you think so many people aren't listening? Well, firstly, I think bodies scream at us um, as uh, a last resort. Um, I, I do think that the messages start to come quietly in the beginning. And if we're not paying attention, Joan, our bodies are screaming at us because what? We're putting our bodies in or ourselves in precarious situations or in poor health and all of those things. Um, so um, why aren't we listening is the question. Again, I, I think it's so important to understand that this culture elevates the mind, elevates the mind, which is uh, primarily masculine energy and denigrates or makes submissive to the body, which is more feminine, female energy. And it's a paradigm shift that many of us have started to make or have made so that we're really saying, I'm not eliminating my mind from the equation, but I am going to start with my body. And what's it trying to tell me? And then I'm going to say to my mind, I'm going to say something along the lines of, well, do you agree or don't agree and why? And I'm going to incorporate the two wisdom bases into a decision that I'm making. But I'm going to start with my intuitive place that knows what's right for me. When we feel that something isn't right within our body, we immediately seek outside advice, which is a wonderful thing to do. But why do you think we're so quick to turn our body over to someone who doesn't know anything about us? That is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful question, Joan. And I think because we're trained to look outside for the experts that we don't See ourselves as the experts in our own bodies. I don't think that, or the, the experts, period, of our own lives. And there's a specialization for everything these days. You know that. Everyone's a specialist. And so if I have a particular problem, so for example, I want to lose weight, or in my mind, my mind says, this is not me, by the way, I want to lose weight. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to go to a diet expert or a diet program that's been around for a long time, as opposed to tuning into my body and saying, hey, let's have a conversation about this, or let me meditate on this for a little bit and see if I need to lose weight and go to an outside expert, or maybe I just need to tweak my schedule 
or maybe I might need to tweak the food that I'm eating or the amount of rest that I'm getting. And so it's challenging for many of us to feel that we're the experts on our own bodies, in our own bodies, and we are trained to go to the outside expert. Eileen, in about 30 seconds or less, do you believe that body wisdom needs to be as valued as mind wisdom? It's the starting place. My body is my master teacher. My body has innate wisdom that my mind doesn't. And remember that our minds, our brains are parts of our body, but my body is my master teacher. So yes, I have to start with my body and it should be minimally on a par with our minds when we go to make decisions about our lives. But I would offer to you and to our listeners to actually start from that place. Don't rule out the mind, but start with the body because it holds so much more wisdom. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit EileenLashinsky.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.